On this electrifying episode of Starpod Trek, we consider the Star Trek contents of Starlog Magazine in issues 43 and 44 from 1981. Shocking John joins us to reminisce about the motion picture trading cards. Bob Turner and Kelly Casto discuss David Gerald's commentary about Trekkers at conventions. Anthony Rooney tells us what it was like to see the motion picture in England, and Andrew McLaughlin describes it from his vantage point in Scotland. And more on this episode of Starpod Trek. Greetings and felicitations. Hip, hip, hurrah, tally-ho. Hey, my little Georgia Peach. Hey, Puddin. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. We grew up in the 70s and 80s and watched Star Trek reruns when it was on syndication. On each episode of our show, we consider the contents in two issues of Starlog magazine and discuss what it was like to be a Trekkie years ago. But we leave the non-Trek-related content to our other podcast, Starpod Log. Feel free to follow along with your personal copy of Starlog magazine, or read it for free online at archive.org. If you would like to comment on a subject or give us feedback, please send an audio file to us at starpodlog at gmail.com. Who knows, we might include your comments on a future episode. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your podcast app and look for us on YouTube for bonus content and media reviews. Feel free to join our Facebook group, too. We look forward to meeting our listeners at the following upcoming conventions. We can't wait. Hopefully you're listening to this on the way down to the most epic convention of them all, DragonCon. The Trek Track at DragonCon is essentially a convention within a convention. So, of course, they have the Trek Track, which is the Star Trek programming. They have a lot of uh, special guests this year. Plus, we'll be there doing our panels. All right, so let's talk about it. Special guests in the world of Star Trek include... From the original series... Walter Koenig and William Shatner. How about from Voyager? Garrett Wong and Titus Welliver. I'm excited to see Titus Welliver. He was a guest on Voyager, but he's been in a ton of shows. Pretty cool. And, of course, Garrett Wong, we know, is the is the track director for all of the Star Trek programming. From Star Trek Enterprise? D.C. Douglas. Who guest starred as Zeft in the episode The Breach. On the Kelvin timeline? Jennifer Morrison, who played Winona Kirk, Kirk's mother. How about Star Trek Discovery? Great panel there. Wilson Cruz, Ian Alexander, Anthony Rapp, and Blue Del Barrio. Also with regards to New Trek on Picard. Michelle Hurd and Annie Wershing. And on Lower Decks. Nolan North. How about Strange New Worlds? Anson Mount, Ethan Peck, and Jess Bush. Of the New Trek, that's going to be the panel that I find most exciting. Yeah, I definitely want to see those people. How about the Orville? Chad Coleman. Who portrays Clyden. And real world Trek. Returning to Dragon Con is... Dr. Aaron McDonald, who is an astrophysicist and a science consultant for the, the Star Trek shows on Paramount+. And in the world of comic books? Mark Bagley. 
We know him from Marvel Comics Mirror Mirror issue. Tana Ford. Joe Caroni. Andy Price. All three of them did work for IDW Star Trek series. Alan J. Porter, who wrote a Star Trek book about the comics. And also, speaking about writers, Larry Niven. We know that he's a legendary science fiction author. Also wrote for the animated series. And Peter David. Keith DeCandido. Dan Jolly. Alex White. And John Jackson Miller. First time John Jackson Miller's going to be there at Dragon Con. Yeah, we're excited to see him. We've seen him uh, at several cons. He's always a great guest. Also with regard to independent productions, Aaron Siegel, who worked on Axanar. Gil Gerard and Aaron Gray, who have also been in Star Trek fan films. How about Bobby Nash, friend of ours? Yes, he worked on Potemkin Pictures and Star Trek Continues. Ray Tessie? Uh, who owns Neutral Zone Studios, and a lot of fan films are made there. Yeah, he's going to be one of the guests on our panel, as well as Scott Little, who worked on First Frontier. He will be a guest on our panel as well. So let's talk about our first panel on the Trek track, Star Trek Fan Films. This has been a tradition with us, because not only have we been in Star Trek fan films, we're supporters of fan films, viewers of them, and have a lot of connections. So this year we just mentioned Ray Tessie and Scott Little are going to be on the panel. What are you most excited about in that presentation? Um, he- hearing Ray Tessie talk about um, all, the, all the stuff that's been going on with Neutral Zone, because I know he, he's got a lot going on there, and a lot of great films have come out of there. It's, it's, um, it's a set that, that's an exact replica of the TOS Enterprise. It's in Kingsland, Georgia, just outside of Jacksonville, Florida. It is open to the public at certain times of the year. So we'll put a link in our show notes. Definitely sign up for their email list so you can get invitations on when events happen. Uh, Scott Little, he's been a guest on the show before on Starpod Log. Huge, huge, huge contributor to films outside. We're talking major motion picture films. So he does model work. He's just one of those people who, in my mind, has a dream job. Yes, it's, it's a real job, but it's, it's essentially a hobby gone wild. His talent set is so incredible. And definitely recommend checking out First Frontier fan film. That's available on YouTube because he was involved in that. We've been over his house to, to see his works. He, he made some awesome models of the uh, the, the shuttlecraft Galileo and the, and the whole shuttle bay, and it, and it really looks neat. It's a miniature, and you you can just you sort of peek inside it, and it's just so cool. He's got all the details in it. Yeah, and the massive Enterprise, huge. Yes. <laughs> so it's exciting to see people like to, like to me as much as I enjoy the celebrities. My true celebrities are the people behind the scenes because they have such a unique passion and you're able to learn so much about everything that goes on in the world of Trek. Another panel that we will be presenting? Star Trek and Starlog Magazine. We go through the whole history of Starlog Magazine and the impact that it made on Star Trek fans. And we're looking forward to doing that one. It'll be great to see like how many people you know, show up that are actually interested in, in Starlog Magazine. How many people at Dragon Con are old enough to remember it? You know, we gave a panel like this at another convention, and what made me feel good was the bulk of the audience was teenagers. They were just amazed, of, and they kept saying, we want to see what life was like before the Internet. Like, we kind of call it the Stranger Things effect. There's this massive interest that teenagers have for things in the 70s and 80s. And we're 
so happy to, to see that this is how Star Trek is going to live when we pass this information on to the next generation. Pardon the pun. <laughs> Absolutely. Because it's, uh, Starlog is free online, so you can look up all the issues, and uh, th- they've got some great stuff there. And of course, we're always marching in the Dragon Con Parade. Yeah, we do the parade every year, and we've, we've actually got a good Star Trek group this time. Um, last year, there weren't as many people in the Star Trek group, and I think because not as many people were going to Dragon Con. So this year, um, it, it should be a much fuller group. So, yeah, we're excited about it. Because you're actually the organizer of the Star Trek section of the parade. I, I reserved a lot of spots in the Star Trek section. So, yeah, my, my group will, will be the largest out of, um, out, out of all the Star Trek people. There are some Star Trek people who, who got their own, um, wristbands, reservations to be in the parade. But I have a large group and, and I was actually interviewed by the Atlanta Journal Constitution about the Star Trek session of, of the parade. That was awesome that they reached out to you because you've been doing the parade longer than me and it's, it's it's such an amazing experience to share the love of Trek with thousands and thousands of people. It's the bulk of the parade routes are about two miles long, and it's Atlanta coming alive. People who don't even go to the convention just line the streets of Atlanta to to see all the geeks come out and showcase their their favorite fandoms. And they always cheer for us. They they do the Vulcan salute for us, and we salute them back. <laughs> Star Trek photo shoot as well on Sunday. So many people have said this is the best Star Trek convention in the world, and we have to agree. There's nothing like the Dragon Con Trek Trek. Starlog Magazine, issue number 43, cover date February 1981. Log entries. Latest news from the worlds of science fiction and fact. He's dead, Spock. Will the famous line, he's dead, Jim, really become, he's dead, Spock? Recent reports carried out by Associated Press and the United Press International have indicated that Captain James T. Kirk will die on page 113 of Vonda McIntyre's Star Trek novel, The Entropy Effect. The book, to be published with much hoopla in June, has Dr. McCoy pulling the plug on Kirk's life support systems, ending 15 years of service as captain of the USS Enterprise. What'd you think about that book? Oh, I love the book. Uh, we reviewed it on Ladies Trek Library, which you can still find on our um, on our YouTube channel. So, I mean, yeah, Kirk does die in the book. I mean, that's something. Spoilers. <laughs> really, <laughs> for a book that's like really old, but uh, yeah. <laughs> NASA launch plans for 1981. Those incredible people at NASA who recently brought you a close encounter with a ringed planet are at it again. There are 16 major launches on their 1981 schedule, mostly for orbiting satellites with scientific and communications missions. To take the payload to orbit, Delta, Atlas, and Scout launch vehicles will be used. According to the NASA program plan, these expendable launch vehicles they can be used only once, will be phased out during the 1981-84 to period as the shuttle takes over all our launch commitments. We see real-world science is connected with science fiction. How many Star Trek fans got involved in this program because of 
watching Trek, and because of Nichelle Nichols encouraging them to reach out for these lofty goals. So the late Nichelle Nichols, yeah, had a lot to do with recruiting people for NASA back at that time. And so um, a lot more people joined NASA then, uh, and of course, and trying to get more women and other minorities to join. And so they got a, a lot more people to join. And we know that in March of 1981, the space shuttle Columbia made its flight. <laughs> and how does that shuttle name work into Star Trek lore? Yeah, it was the sister ship in Star Trek Enterprise. So we know that the shuttle Enterprise just flew, but this shuttle Columbia is actually going into space. So we know the Enterprise series named the sister ship after this shuttle. I love seeing details like this and seeing how Star Trek worked in our real world into the Star Trek universe. 19-year-old monitor space. Among the spaceflight controllers who will monitor flight data when NASA's manned space shuttle makes its first Earth orbital flight will be a 19-year-old Jackie Parker. This is the type of thing when I was a kid... I would dream about doing something awesome like this. Parker goes on to say that her interests were always in math and flying and computer sciences. And we're big supporters of STEM education. But we see this is STEM in action. And it's great to be doing something like that that was always her dream. Takei back show drops out of race. Actor George Takei decided during the past election season to take the road a number of actors have taken recently to follow in the footsteps of Ronald Reagan and enter politics. But Takei's Star Trek role caused him to give up that dream. A 50-year-old law that requires politicians to be given equal time on the airways was his nemesis. Well, that's because Star Trek was so popular it was in constant reruns. And so technically his face was on the screen so often that those he was going against said, hey, this is unfair. People are seeing his face all the time and not ours. It's never happened before. So, yeah, as a politician, um, so he couldn't get more airtime air time than the others, so he decided to drop out. And I think the reason why he dropped out was noble is because of the fact that he was considering everybody else that was involved in the show and as far as getting Trek out there, he didn't want Star Trek to just abruptly stop being on television. So I really give him credit for looking at the big picture. He didn't want the show to be tampered with, which was um, very nice of him. He goes on to say, let me tell you how ridiculous this law is. When I ran for the city council, an animated series of Star Trek had to be blacked out in Los Angeles because my voice accompanied an idealized drawing of me. So it wasn't just the original series, but also the animated series. Pretty crazy, huh? Yeah, it is. Trek in the Red? The greatest science fiction in showbiz is in the accounting. Gene Roddenberry recently told Variety, the creator of Star Trek was complaining that Paramount Pictures has been withholding his share of the profits from the 79 television episodes by stating the series was still $1 million in debt. Yeah, I think I remember reading about that in um, in TV Guide, too. Yeah, they've always had accounting problems. Like that the show never really made a lot of money, but then but Gene was, was saying they made more than, than what they were telling him they made. 
Yeah, Susan Sackett goes on in this article to talk about that, and she says that Paramount has been quoting this figure to them for years, and what's odd about it is that the network stopped the show in the fall of 1969. So we're talking over a decade later, and they're still having odds and ends, things to work out with the finances. And more of it came out later, too, when um, when Gene Roddenberry's ex-wife wanted to sue him for, for some of the Star Trek money. Are you middle-aged or older and attend Dragon Con? Then check out the Dragon Con Over 40 Club on Facebook. It's a place where we share tips, socialize, and just have fun. In the meantime, stay tuned for more exciting programming from Star Pod Trek. Welcome. This is Bob Turner. And I'm Kelly Casto. We are talking about the Rumblings article by David Gerald in Starlog issue 43 from February 1981. Yes. So in the Rumblings section, David Gerald writes about the arrogance that longtime science fiction aficionados have for Trekkies. This harkens back to um, an article we read in the last uh, Starpod Log podcast that David Gerald wrote, he was sort of defending Trekkies in that one. And now he's doing it, but even a little bit more so. Well, right. He, and the article's called Pride and Prejudice. And, and when I read this article, I went back and I, it, to me, it seems like it should have been called Trekker and Trekkie. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, in fact, even the word Trekkies, as Gerald describes it, is an epithet, right? A negative, has a negative connotation yes. to those who like Star Trek. And the negative view of Trekkies got some fans to protest, hey, we're not Trekkies, we're Trekkers. They they wanted a more positive label because Trekkies had a bad label, right? From, you know, the other sci-fi guys. Yes. Um, giving them a bad name as they're uh, filling up or, or cluttering, as the article says, the hallways of conventions and acting like idiots <laughs> and not taking science fiction seriously enough. That's right. They weren't taking it seriously. They dressed in costumes and had props. How could they? Yes. Who and, are these Trekkies? They're not. And, sp- and it sounds like little kids, huh? Trekkies, babies, kiddies. Yes. Really, in the end, I think it's, you know, it's meant to be derogatory. That's for sure. What was interesting was Gerald's reaction, though, to somebody saying, call us Trekkers instead. He says that in the eyes of the bigots who don't like those who like Star Trek, quote, they can't tell the difference and don't care if there is one, unquote, between Trekkie and Trekker. Yeah. And he he went on to say, quote, this young Trekker who was very concerned that I understand the difference, did not understand that it makes no difference at all to the people who laid that head trip on him in the first place, unquote. Right. And that was a great quote. It is. If you don't like Trekkie because it's derogatory, meant to be derogatory, but you want to use Trekker instead, well, guess what? Trekker is going to end up being derogatory too. Yeah. And it doesn't, just, doesn't matter. No, you're, and and he's 100% right. You're just playing into it. You know, um, rather hold Trekkie up as a badge of honor, go, yeah, that's right, we're Trekkies. What do you got to say about that? It is what it is. It is. 
I was going into uh, his Torcon 2, mm. um, the convention in Toronto uh, that he was at, and where he's told them, I'll, I'll do anything you want, any panel, just don't put me on a Star Trek panel. Because I'm trying to distance myself, or, or not distance, really. Um, no, that's exactly what it was. But he needs to get everybody to realize he's a sci-fi writer, not just a Star Trek and wanted to focus on that, those areas. It turns out there wasn't really any Star Trek going on at this convention, except for Dorothy Fontaine. Uh, you can't talk. Yeah. DC Fontana. Yeah. DC. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Um, she was bringing the first Star Trek, the animated series episode to show to everybody at the convention. Uh, well, it goes on that. Every, you know, all these sci-fi fans are there because this is not a Trek convention. There's not really a lot of Trek going on, but there's lots of people waiting for this, for DC to show the episode, but there's an issue with the, the technology issue, right? A tech issue. Yeah. Yeah. So B. Joe Tremble gets up there on stage and just starts, you know, stalling for time, I guess essentially, but talking Star Trek. And and what do they do today at conventions? You, you get the big name actors up there and what do they do? They talk Star <laughs> Trek. They tell stories. Exactly. And it all started here. It did. Well, so um, John Trimble is looking for help for Bijo to get somebody else up there. You know, they don't know how long they have to stall. He finds Dave in the bar and Dave is no, no, I no. And, but to help the the trembles out, he concedes and goes on stage and is talking Star Trek and actually had a great time. A few years later, and this is years la- later, an East Coast fanzine accuses David of pandering yeah. Yeah. to the um Trekkies at Torcon too. Now, this is years later. What the heck is up is, you know, whatever. Um, what's his problem? <laughs> There's another way to say it. Um, so David explains, you know, look, here I am. I'm trying to distance myself. I'm trying to, you know, get people to understand I'm more than just Star Trek. And, but he, he's trying to help. And there are sci-fi fans here at this convention, not Trekkies. Right. So why is he accusing them of being Trekkies? And then why is being a Trekkie a bad thing? You know, at the end of the day. Yep. I think the whole affair made him sort of step back and rethink it. Yeah, right. Right. So yeah, it's an interesting story because in the end, he was doing exactly what he talked about this fan doing. Trekkie versus Trekker. Or, well, don't associate with me, Star Trek. I do other things, too. But in the end. It's all good. And and I like how he finishes the article. He says, quote, if all of us who share that dream, the dream of a better future with Star Trek, could get ourselves organized into a true political pressure group, yes. not even the sky would be the limit anymore. Yes. And he's right. And he's right. Yes. And it's a it's a dream, not just Star Trek, but all sci-fi. It's a yes. dream of tomorrow. It really, really is. And a positive tomorrow. Right. Yeah. I agree.
Hi, this is Mark McRae, and I am the author of The Best Saturdays of Our Lives, and I love all things that are Star Trek, and I watch Star Trek, the animated series. I think it's awesome, and I love the podcast, Star Pod Trek. Bubblegum Card Invasion. In this article, Starlog reports on the phenomenon of collecting non-sport trading cards in the 70s and early 80s. For this segment, I would like to welcome my brother-in-law, John, who was also the co-host of Shocking Things podcast. John, I'm curious. What Star Trek The Motion Picture trading card made the greatest impression on you when you were a kid? Uh, number 25 is one of my favorite ones. It's called The Face of Terror. I believe the name of the character is called the Megarite. They made an action figure, Mego did, of the character. And has this odd look on his face where if you turn the card upside down, it looks like he has two different expressions on his face. The stickers also that came, those were like a bonus item. You didn't get those. I think you might have gotten one per pack. And those are also like purple like a purple uh, like silhouette around each character, almost like a bright pinkish purple, like a bluish background. So that was uh, some of my early memories of trading cards. Yeah, I remember when I was riding with my parents, because we used to always, I mean, when I was real young, travel uh, from, from one town to another town to see my aunt and uncle. And we would stop at the gas station, and my parents would buy me um, a Coke and a pack of Lance crackers, peanut butter crackers. Okay. And, and we would always get these the trading cards at the gas station. That was one place where I got them. And um, I mean, I loved yep. seeing these. Like like you were talking about the aliens. The this was like one of the few places where you could really get a good picture of the aliens and and see like like what they looked like. Since you only got a glimpse of them in the movies, like you said. I mean, like this, and then like the picture from the motion picture from the little insert when the record. So it it was neat to see these, yeah. And I didn't notice that one about the face of terror that you could turn it upside down. That's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, it's really fascinated with that when I was a kid. Yeah, so that was so tops made those, and then there was another like a smaller set. I think there was eighty eight cards in that set, and then Rainbow Bread, right? They made a very similar set. They looked the same, but just a smaller set of the cards. Yeah, they did. It's like um the the same pictures, but they just made. More, they just made the cards themselves, and yeah, different backs. Like uh, I remember that because there's also a puzzle back, and on the original tops ones, I don't think there's a puzzle back on the the rainbow ones. And the puzzle backs were interesting too. I just never like like I don't think I had enough cards to actually put the puzzle together. Did you do that? <laughs> yeah, we're kids. Yeah, no, it was it was too much work uh, knowing our parents were going to spend uh, money to buy the entire box, right? Right. <laughs> to, to get the whole set and just open it up. Uh, when I got older, I, I would do that. I'd buy it, make some sets and try and sell or trade the other sets off. But yeah, as a kid now, it was frustrating. Didn't, didn't have well, enough I mean, to complete the puzzle. It's not like a jigsaw puzzle where, where the pieces like had to fit together a certain way. These you couldn't, it was harder to tell which, which place they go in because they're all the same shape. Yes. Yep. Yes. You had to try and maneuver them around. So the and these always came with bubble gum too. Did you like the bubble gum? I did. Yeah. It's very very as hard as a rock, and sometimes it like kind of crumbled. But I did yeah. like it. Did you like it? No, I didn't really like it. I think I only tried it once, but 
Yeah, it was terrible. And, and, you know, not just these, but all the cards that came, you know, all of these, they they were called bubblegum cards, you know. So all the other sets that you could buy, like Empire Strikes Back, and I I even had Charlie's Angels cards. Like, all of them had that awful bubblegum. I mean. Yeah, bubblegum was a staple. Yeah, Buck Rogers, you like those, I'm sure, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But but you know just don't chew the gum is what I thought. The gum. Did, did you yeah, actually? Some people will we'll do that now. <laughs> I saw online where people open up a pack now from the seventies and just open up to eat the gum to see what it tastes like. Oh, I can't imagine what it would be like now. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> like yeah. forty like year old gum. Like dust. Did you but chew yeah, the no. bubble gum while you were looking at the cards? Oh, probably. Yeah, just an instinct. First thing you do, you open it up, you take that out, you put the gum in your mouth. Uh, another thing, they changed it with the cards back then. There's wax wrappers, and they they changed that uh, years later because the, those would stain the cards. I don't know if you remember that. Sometimes they would stain the cards the way they were positioned in the, the, yes, the factory. Yeah. They sealed them up. So, yeah, so that's one thing, but it added charm to the cards, right? Okay, yeah. <laughs> it seems like there was like, like a powder on it that would get, that get, got on the cards. Uh, maybe it was from the gum, maybe. Yeah, I'm not sure. But I remember it being kind of like a slick like material. Yeah. So when you like, got the uh, sticker, do, do you remember putting the stickers on anything, or did you just save uh, them? Bedroom wall. Yep, the bedroom wall. I would just, put the, I, you put the stickers on the wall? Yes, yes, Nayar. <laughs> I think Nayar is the one who started it. He was a bad influence, Nayar. Yeah, so we oh, yeah. stick those <laughs> on our wall on the wood paneling in the bedroom where kids, we'd stick those on there, I remember. Like this, like wacky packages, the Star Trek ones, those are ones that stand out to me that I can remember. Well, on the wood paneling then, that might have been a little easier to peel off. I don't yeah. know. Were, were your parents <laughs> upset with putting it on the walls? Uh, yeah, I guess it was so far gone at that point. They could, you know, they, <laughs> nothing they could really do, right? It was better than writing on the walls, right? Yeah, okay. <laughs> I used to, I just put them on my notebooks like i had a school notebook and i would just put it on that or something yep i did that sometimes yep that was yeah if you had like a book cover right you would put that on a book cover i remember too for certain books yeah i mean just because it i mean i just did it just to have to do something with the sticker really because you have the sticker you might as well just stick it on something yeah you gotta do something with it yeah no they were it was fun yeah so i'm looking at the the star trek the motion picture it says ten movie photo cards, one sticker, one stick of bubble gum. Yeah, so that was this, just the the one sticker, which was literally the chase the chase piece, the uh, the stickers. Now I'm sure you you and uh, Nair have a full set of these, right? Yeah, we we do now. I mean, I I didn't as a kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, now these uh, uh, right now I know I have these. I have. Uh, Superman ones, I have the Buck Rogers ones. Those are the, the main ones I collected, the Kiss ones. Yeah, they made them for a lot of things. Oh, everything. Yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. It was like a control at one point how many things they're making. Like you said, Charlie's Angels. Yeah, they, even made they were awesome. They made a set that had all the 70s like, bands. I believe they even had uh, the Village People like as one of the uh, bands that they inserted too. Oh, cool. Yeah, no, it was, it was fun times. It's it's different nowadays. You don't really see these cards. <laughs> they have virtual cards now. Yeah, and even with with the like having the puzzle pieces on the back, that they also started putting something, you know, some other stuff on the back. They would have some with text, but but it looked yes. like some like it didn't always fit the picture though. Like there would be a picture I, of 
a ship or something in or say a picture of Kirk and Spock and then it had something about Scotty on the back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they weren't really uh yeah, they weren't really uh, on top of this, right? Uh, the controls uh and the and the at tops and uh flare and all these companies, right? Sometimes they just put them out there. I remember the the Star Wars ones, if you ever took a look at those, those were interesting because they'd have behind the scenes ones. I remember for like the Empire Strikes Back, they'd show um like a woman with uh, Chewbacca uh, like uh, almost like combing his hair before one of the scenes. So that those are interesting because as a kid you never saw anything like that behind the scenes before. Yeah, those were cool. I remember those too. Yeah, it's like you know, you wanted to learn something from looking at looking at it. Yes. Yeah, definitely. So are there any cards you have outstanding now? Or that you uh, think are cards that are outstanding like awesome? I still like the motion picture ones, I keep talking about those those the cards themselves are fantastic because I love they're all like promotional photos or, you know, they're all professional photos. They're not all from the scenes of the film, which I like because you could just watch the movie, but to have something that's not necessarily in the film too, have like the detailed photos. I really like the Buck Rogers ones. The cards themselves really aren't that fantastic. If you, I'm sure you probably have those or seen those, but I, I love the, the show and uh, the film. And for those, I actually bought Tops. It's called the Tops Vault on eBay, and they were selling some of the like the proof cards. They had like uh, black and white cards, and uh, different colors that the tests for the cards. And I have a few of those I actually bought that was used in the production process. So those I really like. Like I said, the Superman cards, I really like those a lot. Those really stand out, and the Star Wars ones, and Kiss. Kiss. Uh, the first series of Kiss really, really. That's the first time I ever saw the band. I'd never heard their music. I saw the cards, the trading cards, and that got me to learn more about the band. So it was kind of like a gateway to get into other things. You look at the cards, and if you didn't know, you know, for this a band or a movie or a television series was, you got to learn more about it and research it. Yeah, the pictures were great. And and just like you said, like the – like for the ones with the aliens, you could tell that people posed for those pictures. There's the nice – blue background so it wasn't just pictures from the movie yes. and even that the steals of the actors like where they just posed for those pictures yeah, and i love seeing that, those yeah yeah that's like because you couldn't see them in the film you know the those the same type of shots so that's what really really grabbed your attention i felt i'm looking at our pictures to... now okay and and there's like there's that, like they're all in uniform, except there's one of Uhura where she's not in uniform. This looks like Nichelle Nichols in a casual um, outfit. You can only see the like the top part, her head and shoulders, but she's not even in uniform. They took a casual picture of Nichelle Nichols for the cards. That's pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> so, did you put your cards in order by the by the numbers, or did you sort them some other way? Yeah, well, I remember when I got older, I would do that. When I was a kid, I didn't really. Uh, it was kind of careless, I guess, when I was really, really young. Then I got older, yes, I would put them in order. I remember uh, we had this little this little case for the sports cards, and I would put all different cards in there. I remember some of the sports cards, some of the non-sports cards to kind of keep them in order. And then later on, they made they would have the cardboard boxes to put them in, also in order. And the little uh, then as I got older, I'd start getting the little plastic cases to put each set in. Yeah, so as I as time went on, I started learning, learning 
more how to store them, and then I would do that. But as, when I was really young, no, I would just whatever. <laughs> there was no order <laughs> yeah. or anything like. I think I remember. So I put, I put, I just put rubber bands around them, which could, uh, yes, yeah, was it was kind of messed them up. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, that was yeah. As far as putting them in order, I think what I did, well, I kept changing it for some reason, but I would have them in order by the numbers, and then I thought, no, I'm going to put them like. In order by the like people and sets and aliens or something like that, and then I would change it back to the numbers. I just sort of kept changing back and forth. Okay. Couldn't I decide how I, I wanted them. All the stickers. I had to put all the stickers together. That was one thing I definitely remember. Yeah. It didn't have yeah. to be in order, but the, the stickers had to be separate than the, the actual cards. I had to do that. So, what were your fondest memories about collecting the cards? Uh, I would just say the surprise of not knowing what you're going to get in every pack. Is it going to be a new card, or is it going to be the same cards you had before, or want to discover something new? And back then, you could also trade with other kids. So if you had extra cards, you could take them and trade them uh, to try and complete a set or get a different set. Oh, I don't have these cards. Let me try and get this You know, for this movie, what have you. Oh, you have black hole cards? I got Star Trek cards. I could trade you for that. So that's what I really like, the surprise of not knowing, you know, especially at a young age, not knowing what you're going to get in each pack. Yeah, and, and I remember, like, when I opened a new pack, I was disappointed if it if it had some that I already had. Like, wasn't that disappointing? Like, oh, shoot. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. No, that, that was definitely not fun. Definitely not fun. <laughs> I mean, sometimes it would be a whole pack of, of ones that I already have. It seems like they only, they like they kept selling the same ones over and over yeah, the way the factory right? <laughs> the way they put them together, definitely. And I didn't have anyone to trade them with like you did. Yeah, sometimes, yeah, it, it seems like at a young age, kids are into them, especially uh, certain different different types of uh, series of cards. Ones are more popular than others. But yeah, it, it was popular. If it was a certain line that was popular with everyone, then there'd be more kids that are apt to trade. Yeah. So when they came out with those rainbow bread cards, and um, you know, each like you could you could tell it was different just because of the logo, even though the pictures were the same. But but what did you think about that promotion? Yeah, you know, I it was just kind of odd that they did that, but I mean, I can understand that you want to try and promote the movie as much as possible the way they did that. So well, Paramount, but yeah, no, I mean, I. I, I thought they were cool. I mean, again, if you got bread as a kid and that came in the package, you'd be happy, right? Yeah. Well, but I never did. No, I never knew about this rainbow bread uh, connection. I don't know if they sold rainbow bread in my area. Yeah, no, I'm not familiar with it. I just knew as a collector as I got older when I found out about it. But yeah, as a kid, oh, I had no yeah. idea what they were. Star Wars did the same thing, I know, with uh, a bread promotion, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, they'd wonder. I believe. Okay. I guess they, they just figure kids like sandwiches, especially peanut butter and jelly. So yeah. Like, yep. Yeah. yeah. Sell more bread, right? So to get that card, you'll <laughs> you don't, <laughs> you don't like the bread. You'll eat, you'll eat a lot of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. You'll tell your mom you want more, right, just to keep getting more cards. Yeah. But, I mean, if your parents aren't familiar, like what if it was a parent that didn't even know that it was a Star Trek card? They might just throw it away. Yes. Exactly. They gotta be on top of this. This is important stuff, right? Right. <laughs> okay, so so it's been good talking about the TMP cards. John, uh why don't you tell our listeners oh, yeah. um about your podcast and where to find it? 
if you go to any podcatcher, just type in Shocking Things, and we talk about uh, horror movies, science fiction, and just other types of pop culture-related episodes. Uh, sometimes uh, Nayar is a guest, and we'll talk about certain things, and it's, it's a lot of fun. Hey, that was some awesome talk about Star Trek The Motion Picture Trading Cards. Like to let our listeners know if you'd like special limited edition StarPod Trek TMP influenced trading cards for free. We're going to do it old school style. Send a self addressed stamped envelope to the address of our studio that's in the show notes, and we'd be happy to send you a set. The great bird of the galaxy, Gene Roddenberry, once said. Star Trek came out at a time Martin Luther King Jr.'s most critical marches in the South, during which Star Trek was making a statement that we must learn the value and difference we find in in other people. Starpod Trek, celebrating Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future. All right, let's take some time and talk about some awesome conventions that we went to recently. First off was Fanboy Expo in Tennessee. What Trek things did we do there? Well, they had um, they had Armin Shimmerman, really nice actor. And, of course, we've seen him before, but he, he was great as usual. Um, talked about Shakespeare, and he's got a trilogy of books that he wrote that he was selling that are fictional books that take place during Shakespeare's time. I was curious. The links to Star Trek and Shakespeare go all the way back to the 60s. How do you feel about all the Shakespeare references that are laced throughout the Star Trek universe? Uh, I'm very fond of that. Uh, not only do the writers uh, are interested in Shakespeare, but most of the, the lead actors on all of the Shakespeare series that I know of, anyway, are, are all classical actors like myself uh, who are steeped in Shakespeare. So they're usually very happy to do that. Um, science fiction and Shakespeare is always thrown well together as well. So Star Trek being a genre part of of science fiction, it seems natural to have Shakespeare references. But, but science fiction tends to be a little bit more literary than most, and again, uh, references to Shakespeare are uh, to be expected. And we also saw Christopher Lloyd. First time seeing him. Yeah, well, he's he's been to Dragon Con before, but I, yeah, but we just never got to see him there. So we finally got to see him at a con, and he was neat. And you asked him a, a question about what would his taxi character do if he was a Klingon, <laughs> <laughs> which was really funny. Um, I think I threw him off because no one's ever asked him about that. Yeah, and but he but he gave a good answer. He made something up, and he was great. You yeah. know, he's a funny guy. <laughs> and they also had. A captain's chair made by a Star Trek fan named Jonathan Douglas. And so he, he was there with his chair and we interviewed him and he told us how he made it and everything. It, it was really neat. It was an exact replica of the one from the original series and it actually had lights and you, you could push buttons and it, and it had sounds. It made, and it made, he had recorded voices that were actually from the original series. Yeah, he made a point saying that his chair, cause every time, we've seen the chair many times whether in Ticonderoga, New York, or in Kingsland, Georgia, or other fans have made them. His is so interactive that when you put the little computer chips in there and press the buttons, they make sounds, and different chips make different sounds. 
So his was more of an electronic wonder than anything else. Yeah, he spent a lot of time making that. So it, it was just really cool, and, and people could have their picture taken with the chair. I think the best Star Trek event that we went to recently was the Starfleet International Region 1 Summit held in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Uh, so we are members of Starfleet International. Uh, we're actually in Region 2, which is the south, the southeast. So, but Region 1 is actually the area where we live, and we went to their summit, and it was pretty cool. We met a lot of nice people there, and they had programming and had their award ceremony. They had a dance on Saturday night. Yeah, it's, it's an incredible club to join. We'll put a link in our show notes. Anyone who's a Star Trek fan, highly recommend joining this club. And they also had a Star Trek auction for charity. And they had a lot of cool stuff at the auction, too, and it, it was just so much fun. Yeah, every time something related to the motion picture came up, you kept pinching me. You wanted it. <laughs> you wanted you want, What did you eat breakfast on this morning? A Star Trek the motion picture plate that, that we bought at the auction. <laughs> yeah. All right, we're here live at the Starfleet International Region 1 Summit. We just got finished bidding on a bunch of items we were at the auction and we raised fifteen hundred dollars for charity i'm here with my special guest kelly mcdermott with the uss kitty hawk and the 105th msg out of raleigh north carolina kelly what did you think about the auction itself oh i thought it was awesome i got some stuff that was really great i got the script from the original picture and that was just awesome to bid on that and actually win it and then i got you know some other stuff i got a blueprint also from that time frame so i'm ecstatic uh, we've been talking about for, for over a year now on our podcast the excitement of the motion picture and how over 40 years later we're still just elated over the amazingness of this movie. Why did you constantly keep bidding and you were relentless with bidding on this script for the motion picture? It's a piece of history for me. Um, I'm a truckie. I've been in truck for a long time. I just joined the Starfleet just this year because I just haven't had the time. So this is... Just something I wanted to do, and I in a place in my life where I can do it. When you go home and look through the script, are there any specific details that you're looking for? Actually, no, I don't know. I'm I don't even know what to think, <laughs> what I'm going to see in it. I don't know if anyone's written in it, so I'm just really excited. All right, describe the cover of it to our listeners. So the the cover actually has a stamp on it that says, you know, return back to them. Um, you know, you can tell it's been used, it's worn. Well used, which I well like. Well used, yeah. I mean, you know, it's not like brand new prestige looking. So you can tell that it's been there. And so it's, it's just, it's a piece of when, history. When it was on the auction block, I'd give it a big sniff. You could tell it's that vintage paper, too. Right? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and yeah. even the font is different. You remember, like, the original font was kind of kind of, kind of, 70s looking. It wasn't the one yeah, that... Yeah, it's not it's, the aerial that we yeah, have today. <laughs> yeah, no. And so, I mean, you... I was skimming through it, and you know, you got stuff that's underlined. So I'm going to go back because it actually, when I was looking through it, it's not just what they say. It actually talks about how they walked in or, you know, gives almost like some cues it looks like. So I'm really looking forward to reading it. Well, thanks again for joining us. Truly our pleasure, and congratulations on the big win. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. After a long absorbing survey of KP-81 star region, our scanners identified a massive new phenomenon. Laser profiles confirmed. These new outer spacers being about twice the size of previous sightings. 
The crew commenced flavor testing. Their judgment? Earthlings have even more to be grateful for. New KP Outer Spacers. Big value for Earthlings. Starlog Magazine, issue number 44. Cover date, March 1981. Hi, my name is Anthony Rooney, but you can call me Roo, and I'm an Englishman who loves Star Trek. Actually, I love science fiction in general. Sci-fi books, television and movies have all been a lifelong passion for me. But Star Trek, an American television series, is the one that has had the most profound effect on my life. Let's slingshot round the sun, back to the north of England in the 1960s, and I'll try to explain. My first encounter with Star Trek occurred when I was six years old, in January 1969, and it was in the form of a comic strip. The strip was part of a brand new weekly comic called Joe 90 Top Secret. Fast forward to June 1969, and I was watching Doctor Who at my grandparents' house with my grandpa. The credits came to an end, and a trailer started for a brand new American science fiction serial that would temporarily be taking Doctor Who's place on BBC One on Saturday evenings. I was stunned. Someone had made a television series based on the comic strip in Joe 90 Top Secret. How on earth had they found actors who looked so much like the drawings? Inaccurate, inaccurate, data in error. Well... As I say, I was very young, but I eventually figured it out. Working. One particular Star Trek fan club, STAG, or the Star Trek Action Group to give it its full name, had a good line of communication with Gene Roddenberry via his assistant Susan Sackett. And as the 1970s progressed, they started to pass on news of a possible Star Trek movie, then TV series, then movie again. Enough talk, let's get on with it. I'm not sure I quite believed it was ever going to actually happen. Then finally, one day, opening an issue of Starlog magazine, I found myself looking at a photo of the cast, reunited for the official announcement of Star Trek The Motion Picture. It was real! It was happening! Finally! After an eternity of waiting! Well, I say eternity... At the time, the wilderness years between the end of the original series and the motion picture seemed to stretch on forever, as time does when you're young. In the meantime, though, falling asleep listening to audio recordings I'd made of episodes, I would dream up my own Star Trek adventures. We didn't have the term headcanon in those days, but in my own mind I was pretty clear that after the five-year mission ended, Sulu became captain of his own starship, and Chekhov was his science officer. Well, I was almost right. As fanciful as my own made-up Star Trek adventures were, I like to think that they were more faithful to the television series than some of the other Star Trek fiction I was being exposed to. And I'm not just talking about the fanfic with the baby dragons. Some of the tie-in novels were more than a little off-model, shall we say. I recall my excitement when I found a copy of Spock Must Die by James Blish in the local branch of John Menzies. I mean, wow, 
It had a picture of two Spocks on the cover. Fascinating, fascinating. And you know how much I love an evil double story. And for the most part, I did enjoy the book, even though it was a little off in some regards. I was used to this, though, because in those days, television tie-ins were rarely faithful to the source material. Novels based on the Time Tunnel, Land of the Giants and The Invaders would quite often leave you scratching your head, wondering if the authors had actually seen the TV shows that they were writing about. Not our universe. Something parallel. Parallel universe, coexisting with ours on another dimensional plane. Everything's duplicated. Almost. But bad as they sometimes were, I was glad to have them because they were extra episodes of the TV shows I loved. Thankfully, the quality of the books did improve over the years. Slowly but surely, the UK release date for Star Trek The Motion Picture crept ever closer. And there was a great deal of anticipation for the return of Captain Kirk and co. This was fed by the many articles appearing in newspapers and magazines, and also the television coverage. William Shatner himself even popped across the pond to promote the motion picture. Are you ready? We were still a couple of years away from video recorders being commercially available to the masses in this country, so I used to record episodes of Star Trek and other science fiction series on audio cassette. I would ask my family to be quiet. No, I beg my family to be quiet and then hold the condenser microphone to the television speaker. No, it wasn't very high-tech. I also used to record any features or interviews about Star Trek The Motion Picture that turned up on magazine programmes like Parkinson, Clapperboard, Screen Test and other programmes you won't know. Unfortunately, they always showed the same clip from the film, the Enterprise being drawn into the wormhole. This meant that whenever I listened back to my audio recordings, I'd hear the same scene over and over again. Emergency alert! Emergency alert! Emergency alert! Emergency alert! Wormhole! Get us back on impulse power! Full reverse! Emergency alert! Emergency alert! Negative helm control, Captain. Going reverse on impulse power. Subspace frequencies jammed, sir. Wormhole effect! Negative control from inertial lag will continue 22.5 seconds before forward velocity slows to sublight speed. Unidentified small object has been pulled into the wormhole with us, Captain. Directly ahead. Force fields up full. Put object on viewer. Manual override on helm. No manual response, sir. Navigational deflectors coming up, sir. Wormhole distortion has overloaded main power systems. Navigational deflectors inoperative, Captain. Directional control also inoperative. Time to impact! Twenty seconds. Mr. Chekhov, stand by on phasers. No, belay that phaser order. Arm photon torpedoes. Photon torpedoes. 
subject is an asteroid reading mass point seven. Targeting asteroid. Impact in ten seconds. Beep, 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 beep. Impact in eight seconds. Fire torpedoes. Torpedoes away! And that was the Royal Shakespeare Company's recreation of the wormhole scene from Star Trek The Motion Picture. There was a great deal of merchandising too. A novelisation, of course, action figures, of course, comics from Marvel, posters... A sticker book full of emblems, insignias and signs from the movie Enterprise. I recall that I stuck the insignia for the transporter room on my bedroom door for some reason. And it was murder to remove it when the time eventually came. Weetabix ran a promotion giving away free cardboard standees of the cast and various weird aliens. And on the back of the box there were cut out dioramas of the bridge and the hangar bay to stand them on. Gordon Archer's illustrations for the Weetabix promotion were very nice, but I preferred the bubblegum cards, which gave us actual photos of the crew and, again, those weird aliens. I always thought those pictures of aliens were a bit misleading, as they suggested the motion picture would be crawling with them. In truth, they mostly turned up in the background of that scene where Kirk gets off the shuttle at Starfleet headquarters. Blink and you'll miss them. One particular memory I have from that time is of seeing a teaser movie poster and being somewhat taken aback by it. Not by the art, which was a very striking picture of the Enterprise rather than the more familiar rainbow effect poster we'd get later on. No, I was taken aback by the blurb at the top of the poster. A 23rd century odyssey, now. Wait a minute, I thought. The 23rd century? Star Trek set in the 22nd century, isn't it? Okay, now you're probably wondering what on earth I'm talking about. You might even be screaming at whatever device you're listening to this on that everyone knows that Kirk and Co's treks took place during the 23rd century. Well, I didn't. Not in 1979, at any rate. Star Trek had kept its exact date a bit vague. From the few clues we'd been given in the series... I'd come to the conclusion that Star Trek was set in the 22nd century. Since then, of course, all the star dates have been properly pinned down, so everyone can be very clear when Star Trek is set. The future. Unless it's a time travel episode, of course. Then it's the past. When Star Trek The Motion Picture finally arrived at my local cinema, I was all ready to go to the very first performance. Unfortunately, cruel fate stepped in with a burst water pipe, which meant that I had to wait for the plumber. Arr! Eventually, though, I got to the cinema for a later performance, and clutching my newly purchased movie programme, which was again filled with pictures of lots of weird aliens that I'd miss if I blinked during the nanosecond they were on screen, sat in my chair, waiting for the movie to begin. Now... For the purposes of this recording, I was going to relive the experience by popping the DVD in the player and re-watching Star Trek The Motion Picture. But I can't be bothered. So instead, I'm going to relive the experience by looking at the Viewmaster reels. 
Here we go. Don't you just love that sound? Yeah. That is the sound of my childhood, that is. Hmm. Now, much has been said about the pace of the movie and the fact that it seems to take forever for the Enterprise to travel through the Vija cloud. Well, when I was watching at the cinema, I recall people grumbling during these sequences, and it was a bit of a shock, as I'd never been part of a disgruntled cinema audience before. Boo! Now, if you're young and you're used to sitting in the cinema while people are having telephone conversations and crunching loudly on foodstuffs during a movie, then you might be surprised to hear that, back then, it was regarded as rude to talk while a film was playing. So I was genuinely shocked to hear people asking out loud, When does this end? How long does this film go on for? Oh, it's so boring! And when it did finally end, I could hear many in the audience complaining as they left the building. What a load of rubbish! It struck me that while the box office take for that showing must have been very healthy, as the house was packed, it didn't seem like many of those people had enjoyed what they'd just experienced. Thinking about it, I suspect the audience was mostly made up of people who thought they were going to see another Star Wars movie with huge space battles and villains to hiss and boo at. What they got instead was something more akin to 2001 A Space Odyssey. I don't think a lot of Star Trek fans got what they were hoping for either. I know that I had mixed feelings about the motion picture myself. I didn't hate it, but I didn't love it either. At least, not at the time. You see, over the years that followed, I gradually came to love the motion picture. In fact, it's now my favourite Star Trek movie. I'm not going to try and justify that statement because, well, why should I? These things are subjective, and if the film's not your cup of tea, that's fair enough. What I will say, though, is that for me personally, Star Trek The Motion Picture marked the end of an era. I was no longer the little boy who'd watched Star Trek with his grandpa. I'd soon be leaving school and entering the adult world of work. There would be much to distract me. But not completely. Finding myself with a disposable income, I started to attend Star Trek conventions, and at one, I met the woman who would become my wife, and eventually the mother of my son. To this day, I tell him that he owes his life to James T. Kirk, and it's true, he does. I'm glad to report that I've passed on the sci-fi gene, and my son is very much a Star Trek fan himself. His favourite Star Trek series is Enterprise, though he's not too sure about the theme tune. As for me, I've watched the Star Trek sequels as they've come along with varying degrees of interest, but not with quite the same amount of love that I hold for the original series, the one that I grew up with. I do think the current crop of series, Discovery, Picard, Lower Decks and especially Strange New Worlds, are all particularly good, and I'm very much enjoying them. Later this year I'll be hitting my 60th birthday. That may not be old old, well, depending on your perspective, but it's old enough that I can see the finishing line from where I am now. As I begin to face up to my own mortality, it occurs to me that there will be Star Treks I won't see. Captains and starship crews that I will never know. I'm sad about that, but I'm glad I was there for the beginning. 
And I wouldn't change that for anything. One last thing. Stardate, a couple of years ago. Like Dr. Sam Beckett, I finally decided to put right something that had once gone wrong. Unfortunately, I didn't have access to a quantum leap chamber, but I did have access to eBay. And one day, a package arrived in the post. I opened it up, and inside, a dinky toy Starship Enterprise sat nestled in bubble wrap. The hands that lifted the toy from the box had a few age spots, and the face that gazed lovingly at the toy had a few lines and wrinkles. The soul, though. The soul was that of a very happy boy, aged 12, going on 13. Our special guest is going to be none other than... Captain Andrew McLaughlin, Colsine Velocian. And where are you from? Scotland, Glasgow. Let's talk about growing up Trek in Scotland. What was it like to be a Star Trek fan growing up? It was actually pretty amazing, although I take my leap of sci-fi from watching TV shows like Thunderbirds, Captain Starlet, Stingray, uh, Joe 90. So I grew up with Jerry Anderson, um, who's our version of one of your greats from the States. Um, so Star Trek for me wasn't that much of a leap. And I think that it represents diversity very, very well. It corners all aspects of people with disabilities. Um, it doesn't matter whether you're gay, straight, transgender, binary. And I thought Star Trek had a lot of great episodes from TOS, from TNG to Deep Space Nine that covered that very, very well. But what I loved about it is I've got friends that are members of that community. And what they've always said is that they were grateful that it paid more attention to their character than, oh, yeah, yeah, we're, I'm gay, I'm straight, I'm whatever. And I felt that is one of the things that Star Trek has reached out to all generations to say, Look, it's okay to be different. It's okay to be who you are. I mean, some of the best episodes deal with that. I mean, the Masterpiece Society is such a great episode because Jordy is a blind man. He's a blind man in a society that is genetically engineered to be perfect. And the solution to one of their problems to save their planet comes from a guy that's that under any circumstances wouldn't be allowed to be there. You know, things like... Things like um, the Outcast was a great episode because it dealt with uh, dealt with what it was like to be gay, straight, androgynous, trans, and it dealt with it in a way that yes, it was shocking, but it was also a much more mature adult episode that I think we've not yet seen in like TV shows like Discovery. And it's uh, what I think is great is that. Star Trek, after two years of us being in exile, we've all been in lockdown, it's still as stronger as it ever has been. We're, we're getting new fans every single day through contents like Lord Deck, Strange New Worlds, and it's harking back to what the spirit of Star Trek should actually be. And I think that as long as we, as long as we have Star Trek around, as long as we embrace its ideology, as Kalis once said, or the clonist Kalis once said, who cares if Kalis never returns? So long as his, his philosophy is honourable and we remember his teachings, we will go on, we will remember. And it's, it's great because all of us at some point in our life have been challenged by a difficult situation and we've gone, I know it sounds corny, but we have said, what would Kurt do? What would Picard do? What would Riker do? And 
I think one of the things that is always stood out about Star Trek for me is that Picard has said it best. It's still possible to commit no mistakes and to still lose, which is akin to you can do it perfectly, but we will always have mistakes. My, I think one of my favorites, and it, it's, it's cliche to say we all have our captains, we all have our favorites. Uh, what's your favorite captain? Kirk. The man, the myth, the legend, the <laughs> maverick who broke the rules, but for the right reason. I always say that I'm Gene Simmons, Captain James T. Kirk, and James Bond all rolled into one. So there's no doubt about it. Well, He's my I, captain. When we have conventions in Scotland, everyone knows that there's a convention on. So when you're walking down the high street, sometimes you might get sneers, laughs, jeers, but mostly everyone recognizes the outfit and gives you the Vulcan salute. I would say in some ways Scotland is what America wanted to be because we are the home of the weird, the wonderful, and the insane. We embrace, <laughs> we embrace everyone for who they are. Yeah, we've had religious fights in the past. You've got the typical Ranger Celtic stuff. But there's a, there's a massive, there is a massive community of sci-fi fans in Scotland from all over every series. And they do try and make it to the cons. And they've been there since the beginning. And I'm pretty envious of that because I come from a time after the great conventions where they were bigger than this. They were better than this. You can meet your stars and talk to them for hours and hours and hours. There was... There was Kayleys, there was karaoke's. It was probably known as the greatest time to be a sci-fi fan ever. It used to be. The conventions used to be more of a community than it was a, a, in a, a money grab. I would say so. I would say so. But I would say the greatest thing about being a geek and a nerd is we gave me our brothers and sisters on a fairly regular basis. And lockdown, I would say, was very, very hard for a lot of our, our members because... For some of them, being here at a convention is probably the... They get to be themselves, let's put it that way. They yeah. get to be who they are before they're back to the reality. And it was hard for them, but it kept their spirits up in a way I have not seen in a long time. Tell us about the ship that you're part of in Scotland and the longevity of this ship. Well, I can't say too much about it. You'd have to speak to the Admiral of the Valiant, David Wharton, because he and the crew were, they grew up with it in the 60s. They were through it for TNG, Voyager, DS9, at a time when we didn't have the internet. We never had the internet. Uh, And they were the longest-running members, and it is... The USS Valiant is the longest-running um, group in the whole of, of Scotland. The USS Valiant is actually... They got an episode dedicated to them called, as you know, the USS Valiant, which was led by a bunch of arrogant, egotistical cadets that ended up getting their defiant class blown up. So um, they've been the longest-running in the whole of Scotland, um, and they're, they're, they've been very loyal, very passionate to the show. Um, they're always on the lookout for new members to come and join the crew. Um, and I've, I've on, I can honestly say I've, honest, I've been honoured and privileged to be a part of them. I was one of their new members. I joined the crew in 2017 with my friend Tracy. And it was, it was great because, and I've said this to David, and I've said this to my fellow Star Trek fans, if you go, on the, if you go on the, into any group nowadays, it's all eBay. 
it's all it's all Facebook, it's all Twitter, it's all the different social platforms. There's not a there's not a lot of groups now that ever 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 meet up in person either after a con or before a con, and I feel like that's a great shame because everything is now social media. It's Facebook, that it's Twitter, it's social media. Very very few groups now either in the states or the UK get a chance to meet up and discuss sci-fi. Um, and one of the great things about being a member of the Valiant is we don't. We are primarily a Star Trek group, but we don't just discuss Star Trek. We discuss Babylon 5, mm-hmm. Battlestar Galactica, Doctor Who. I would say I'm bitrexual. I like a lot of things. Yes, I will shake your hand to that. <laughs> I will shake your hand to that. And especially being Scottish. Did, did Star Trek get it right, the depiction of Scotty? How would, how would you feel about that? Yeah, there's a, there's a fight. There's, I think they got Scotty right. I think they got Scotty right in terms of he captures that warrior spirit that I think in many ways a lot of Scots, maybe not myself, but a lot of Scots do feel that we do have that warrior-esque spirit that would, um, that let's put it this way, that if the Klingons were to fight a group of Scots, um, they would get their ass kicked, I think. But I think... In many ways, that's symbolic of the UK as a whole, I would have thought, because I've got a lot of friends that are English, Irish, Welsh. I've got friends that are religious, non-religious, you know, members of the LGTV community. And I feel that we wouldn't give a crap. If someone was to slag us off, all of us would rise as one. We wouldn't, it wouldn't just be that way. But um, Scotty is, is, captures that classic warrior-esque of, of Scotland and that tongue-in-cheek humour of of it. So the fact that we've got Scotty in the novels coming back to lead Starfleet Corps of Engineers and there's a great book um, called Ship of the Line and it's not canon but apparently in it Scotty redesigned the Enterprise-E. So that's why we get such great beauties in Starfleet. We've got such great ships and it's we reach out to everyone and everyone and we keep going for that and it's I think it is. Um, I think it is a future that we might see. We might, but I think we might go more Babylon Five than we might go Star Trek, because um, <laughs> humanity is. We do have a lot of flaws, and yes, we try and make up for that. But I don't think we'll ever get there to that to that point where we'll be like money won't be running our world. But I, as I like, so they have credits in, in in Star Trek. It might not be physical money, and it almost seems like that's the way that we're going. Because in the UK, everybody here, I'm going to different kiosks, and they're saying no cash, card only. So it's, I mean, we could be going credits. Who knows? We could be going credits, but what I'd love to see is us going gold bars of platinum, because <laughs> it's interesting enough that Riker mentions that he owes Quark a lot of platinum. <laughs> now, my answer to this is just exactly what is it Riker did when he's met um, when he's met Quark. Now, one of, the, one of the great things I think is that we're getting there. It is, it's, a, it's a show of force that we're getting there. So let me ask you this, going back to Captain Kirk, what do you think about him taking over in Star Trek The Motion Picture? He was a maverick, right? Yeah. Not being a, an admiral anymore, but one good hands-on, pushing Decker aside. How do you feel about those actions? I, I think that Kirk set the standard for a lot of Starfleet officers in the here and now. He was proof that you could break the rules and regs for good reasons and good reasons alone. That was not, that was not the guy going, oh, just... 
it for the sake of it. That was a goal going... There's going to be loopholes in the federation policy. There's going to be loopholes in the prime directive. We cannot, we cannot stand by and not intervene when a planet is facing danger. And that's what I love about both versions of Kurt, the 209 version and the now. And what I love about it is that he made a leap of faith, right? I'm not a religious man, right? I, I, I know there is religion in Star Trek and it's been very, very well done. But he took a leap of faith because he only had Sarek's word that Spock could come back from death. Any of us would have been like, our best friends died, our families died, they're not coming back. But because Sarek said to him, there is a way Spock can return, Kirk was willing to sacrifice his son, his starship, to make that happen. He had that charisma that a lot of people, even in our Monday lives, wish we had. Can we be stronger? Can we be better? Can we stand up to our friends as much as we stand up to our enemies? And I would argue that all the captains had that. All the captains had the different things that made them great. Now, one of the best things ever is Kirk's forgotten a lot of things. He's the head of Starfleet. Uh, he's the Admiralty. He's forgotten a lot of the rules. He's forgotten a lot of the regulations. He's forgotten what it's like to be in deep space. He's forgotten what it's like to operate a starship. And they say that to him, not just in the original motion series, but Star Trek 2. So in final question for you, and it's gonna, we're going to leave you on a Scotty question. What do you think about the refit of the Enterprise that we saw in the motion picture? And Scotty put in extra work to make sure that that thing was ready to go. Scotty always said it himself. You do it yourself because the engineers don't know how, uh, the yards don't know how to do fracco. Um, sorry to borrow a Battlestar Galactica quote, but he always said it. She's a glorious lady of the line. And I would argue that all ships of the line, uh, can, they should carry the name Enterprise, should be gorgeous, sleek ladies of the line. And I will always say that because there's always going to, uh, no matter, right, everyone's got their favorite class of ship. Some people have got the Sovereign, some people have got the Galaxy, the Prometheus. But when it comes to Enterprise, ooh, man, that lady, <laughs> that lady does, and I mean, let's face it, Everyone will always tell you there was one lady in Kirk's heart always, and that was the Enterprise. There would never not be a moment that you can see Kirk sitting in that captain's chair and go, I am home. And I suppose in a way that's true for a lot of Star Trek fans, a lot of um, sci-fi fans in general, is sci-fi is our home. We've got our family, we've got our friends, we live in reality, but most of us grew up in fantasy and sci-fi. And that is our home. And whenever we go to the cons, our brothers and sisters are there. And it doesn't matter whether we meet our heroes or not. Our brothers and sisters are here. And uh, and so long as we have podcasts, as long as we have fan films that are get better every second of every day, the quality is getting better. I mean, if you look at it, Star Trek, we've had Alex Pierce. We've had a lot of fan films, and they've proven to Paramount the fans are a force to be reckoned with. Now, I think a lot of these fans, Paramount needs to get them on board. Paramount needs to get the fans more on board. They need to reach out more because Star Trek is going to be a money-grab opportunity. They're pumping it out. 
permits pumping it out, they know what they've got, they just need to get better at it. Because if they recognise that the fans have a lot more to contribute, the fans are doing fan films better than Paramount are doing them. I think we, I think you would agree with me, Ryan, yes. that, is, that has been the case. Yes. Um, and that is why we've had Strange New Worlds and it's been done right. It's recapturing the spirit to a lot of Strange New World fans. It's recapturing the spirit of TOS. But it's recapturing the spirit of TNG, DS9, Voyager, and Enterprise. And if we do that, if we hold true to that, we will get true. As always, we're going to end the episode by looking at one of the advertisements found in Starlog magazine. This was in the classifieds. Now realize there is no picture related to this. It's a small blurb that says, Star Trek TV fans, color in italicized, ship collages from Trek and Trek movie. $5. Doug Day, out of Los Angeles, California. Pretty vague there. What do you think you would get for $5 with that color ship collage? I can't imagine. What? What is it like? Do you think it's something he painted? <laughs> it doesn't say. Is it a poster? <laughs> is it a card? I don't know. So, yeah, it's just a fan trying to sell something. This is the world before the internet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, just random, right? Put your five dollars in an envelope and good luck. See what happens. Yeah, I wonder if he ever sold anything. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our Facebook group. Live long and may the force be with you, Nanu Nanu.